Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garde. It's Thursday, January 20th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. Biotech is in the dumps. We talked to Oppenheimer analyst Jared Holtz about why the world has soured on the sector and what it means for the future of medicine. The latest big idea from big science is a company called Altos Labs, which has raised $3 billion to do something or other. Stats Matthew Herper joins us to explain. We start with a look at the latest news in the life sciences with a cameo from Martin Shkreli and an update on the pandemic response. But first, a word from our sponsor. Over 1.5 million changes happened in clinical trials in 2021 alone. Of those, only 8% were relevant events to people working in the life sciences industry. If you work in investment, strategy, or competitive intelligence, separating the relevant from the irrelevant can be hugely time-consuming. That's where Stat Trials Pulse comes in. Using proprietary machine learning and editorially driven algorithms, we sort through all those millions of events in real time to surface the ones that are most relevant to you. Built by AI company Applied XL and vetted by STAT's national biotech team, STAT Trials Pulse will help you find newsworthy data before it becomes a headline. Try it out for your first four weeks free. If you like what you see, enjoy a special introductory rate available through February 2022. Learn more at statnews.com slash trialspulse. So starting with the COVID-19 pandemic, it is mid-January. We went through a winter full of varying prognostications about just what Omicron would do, what it would look like, when the peak might subside. So Meg, from from this vantage point, where are we in that process? Well, if you look nationally, um, the picture suggests perhaps we are at or even over a peak um, in the case numbers with Omicron, which reached, you know, about 800,000 every day. And those are just the ones that got recorded. Of course, we know a lot of people are taking home tests and those don't necessarily get reported. Um, It's much more pronounced in the Northeast, the cities that were hit first and hardest. um, We've really seen case numbers start to come down. Um, It's different in different areas across the country. So as we've seen for the entire pandemic, we're going to see this kind of play itself out regionally. But, you know, experts sort of universally think we get through this Omicron surge by mid-February and certainly um, by March. The question, of course, then becomes what comes after that? And um, Stats' Helen Branswell had a wonderful story this week that had some hope in it that suggested we might get a breather after Omicron. And there was divergence in opinions in the story about how much of a breather we really would get. There was one person she quoted who really thinks this is the beginning of the end and there's going to be enough immunity built up that this really changes the face of the pandemic. There were others who say you cannot predict what the next variant looks like and we could still be dealing with something really bad later. That's all something we're going to have to see. But I think there is so much hope that, you know, come March, we're going to have an easier spring, hopefully an easier summer, fingers crossed. Then I think the other kind of big thing people have been focusing on over the last week or two has been 
um, the vaccine for kids under five. Moderna put out a release saying um, that it expects data for kids down to age two in March. And that kind of dovetails with the timing we're looking at now for Pfizer, which had to add a third dose for kids under five because the two to four-year-old dose wasn't enough with two doses. Um, And they're expecting data late March, early April. And so parents of kids under five are just in this kind of limbo situation where everybody else can choose to get vaccinated and protected. Um, We have a little bit of a different situation. And I joined Lizzie O'Leary on Slate's What Next TBD podcast last week um, to talk about this and just got a huge response from, you know, friends and family. I think this is something that people with kids in this age group were just kind of feeling like we're on this island um, and really hoping things look good in a couple months with the data. One thing that'll be curious to watch in the coming weeks and months is obviously we've had available vaccines in this country and around the world for quite some time and and for the Delta wave. But what's relatively new for Omicron is the availability, albeit limited availability, of oral antivirals um, for people who've been recently diagnosed. But I would recommend strongly to people a story in the New York Times by a friend of this podcast, Rebecca Robbins, where she chronicles the process that she went through after her mother was diagnosed with COVID-19, trying to get her mother one of the monoclonal antibodies that works against Omicron or um, Pfizer's pill. And basically, I mean, I won't spoil the story, people should read it. But the hoops that she has to go through, I mean, I can attest having worked with her, and I'm sure anybody who's ever tried to keep some information from her as a reporter can similarly attest, Rebecca is very talented, very diligent, very good at this. So when you consider what she had to go through and, and, um, you know, how difficult it was to get this pill for her mother, and then you apply that to someone who, you know, doesn't have the time and ability and and whatever that Rebecca has, um, it's kind of alarming when we look forward to, you know, this peak maybe easing, it may be rolling and coming into different geographies in the United States, that this pill that we know is very powerful in keeping people out of the hospital is apparently so difficult to obtain. Yeah, that was a really great story. And she really uncovered a lot of... It was a great piece. A lot of um, things that were surprising to me. Like I thought, I was like, oh yeah, we know this is in really short supply, but there were things in that story that, you know, doctors weren't even prescribing it. You know, it was like, wow, this is this is an option or should be an option. And she tried a lot of folks and she couldn't get it through telemedicine. And yeah, I just I back you up, Damien, and definitely recommend that as a read. So pivoting to Martin Shkreli, Adam, why are we talking about him? Well, a lot of people think that Martin is in federal prison for being the farmer bro and raising the price of Daraprim, which is not why he's in prison. He's actually in prison for securities fraud. But we had a ruling uh, in a federal case, federal lawsuit last week in which uh, the judge uh, ordered Martin to pay almost $65 million. uh, And uh, as a result of all the shenanigans that he did uh, at his pharmaceutical company related to Daraprim and the price increase. Um, And maybe most interestingly, the judge banned Martin for life from the pharmaceutical industry. So Martin, when he, once he gets out of prison and, you know, if he wants to get a job, once he gets out of prison, um, I guess he won't be able to work for or start uh, another drug company. Can he work in the financial industry from the previous ruling or is he also banned from that industry? <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, I don't I don't recall whether he was banned from like being a, you know, being an officer of a publicly traded company. I imagine he would be, but I don't know. But but that you bring up a good point, Meg, because I, I thought, you know, look, no one has a lot of sympathy for Martin Shkreli, but it seems kind of it's far reaching to sort of ban somebody from 
ever being employed in the pharmaceutical industry. Now, if you work in a licensed industry, like, you know, if you're a doctor, you're an engineer, uh, or even if you work on Wall Street, you know, and you have to get a license to be a stockbroker, you know, if you break the law, you know, the government can ban you from from those industries because, you know, you need to be licensed. But you don't really need to be licensed to be, to like work in the pharmaceutical industry, industry necessarily. So I just wonder whether that ban would stick. Yeah, I'd be curious to see if that holds up on appeal. And and similarly, you know, the bans from serving as directors of, of public companies usually come with settlements with the Securities and Exchange Commission. And we've seen people not navigate around that per se, but I, I think of Sam Waxel, who famously went to federal prison and, and received a similar ban from publicly traded companies. But that didn't stop him from founding a private company that later went public where he took sort of a backseat role. Uh, and then that company was sold to Sanofi for X billion dollars, and and he's doing fine. So it's conceivable that the that Waxel paved a route that uh, that Martin might be able to follow, but that would depend on his being able to overturn this ban. of a pandemic that proved that the biotech industry has the power to help save the world, one can be excused for not realizing the industry is actually having kind of a rough time on Wall Street. The value of a widely followed biotech stock index fund, the IBB, is down 20% over the last year. But that doesn't even tell the whole story because it's dominated by bigger companies like Moderna, whose stock is benefiting, of course, mightily from its COVID vaccine. Yeah, and another index fund, the XBI, which tracks smaller and mid-sized biotech companies, has lost almost 40% in the past year. So what's ailing biotech? To help us sort it all out, we turn to Jared Holtz, the healthcare equity strategist with Oppenheimer. Jared, welcome to The Read Out Loud. Thank you, Meg. I appreciate it. So Jared, what are you hearing from investors and from people in the industry about what they're experiencing right now with this sort of sector-wide downturn. Well, this seems like the most dour the healthcare buy side has been in my experience, which is almost a decade uh, in this sort of role. The downdraft since February of 2021, so almost a year now, has been the most significant in any period of time where investors have been tracking biotech. There's a combination of despair, and also confusion as to why the indexes are performing so poorly. You know, Jared, you noted earlier this week that biotech stocks are barely 10% above levels. You know, when a infamous ex-senatorial tweet uh, thwarted the category for months, and I'm assuming you you were talking about Hillary Clinton's 2015 tweet about Martin Shkreli, his price gouging, and the plan to bring down uh, drug prices. Drug pricing legislation of late hasn't actually gotten anywhere. So, what do you think is causing this current route? That's right. I mean, the the quote was referring to the Hillary Clinton tweet of the of 2015 and the damage that ensued, but the indexes recovered quite a bit. And we came into 2021 at an all-time high. I think what's happened over the past year um, is twofold. I think, one, during 2020 and, and part of 2021, investors started gravitating away from certain industry groups that they thought were more susceptible to pain and turmoil um, as affected by the pandemic and COVID and everything else going on. So biotech in some way became a safe haven because it was outside of the macro factors that were influencing other industry categories. So I think you had some synthetic interest in biotech that had not occurred before. 
which really lifted the entire sector for the majority of 2020 into last year. And I think what's happened subsequent to that is that these other industry groups have become more ownable by investors as, as they've discovered the reopening trade and everything that that means for the likes of energy, industrials, consumer, and other retail-oriented segments. And the second piece, which I think is probably as or more important, is that so many of these biotech funds that we all know very well have essentially become private equity vehicles. All of their interest, in my opinion, has been in the private space and away from public. So that sort of apathy, I think, has led to the XBI and the IBB to a lesser degree selling off so significantly. And why do you think that is, that there's been this interest in pr the private space, especially as we've seen so many new biotech companies come on the public markets, almost to the extent that it's baffling that there are so many publicly traded biotech companies? Well, I think that's exactly the problem. We've gone through five or six years with roughly 75 to 100 new IPOs in biotech per year. And I think what that's done is essentially added a whole lot of confusion in the public market as the healthcare hedge fund community that's investing in the private space continues to put more money into these privates that continue to get marked up by other investors. So essentially what's happened is there's been a little bit of a game, um, I think, orchestrated by just a few firms, a few funds that have made the public markets much less tenable for investors. You know, Jared, you mentioned these large healthcare hedge funds, you know, that have that have grown so big, right? They're, they've got billions of dollars in assets, and you know, it's kind of counterintuitive. It's like you know, the larger you are, the harder it is almost to make money buying biotech or healthcare stocks, right? I mean, and that's kind of one of the reasons why they've gone into these other vehicles. They've become more private equity focused or, you know, more recently than that, more, you know, SPACs, for instance, um, you know, different ways to make money. Because it seems like, you know, kind of the just traditional stock picking has just no, no longer working for them. I think that's right. I think a lot of the hedge funds in the in the healthcare arena have found that allocating more money in the in the private space has given them a big edge, a big advantage over other institutional investors that are looking at the same stocks every day. So they've essentially pivoted. Um, they've reorchestrated their funds. They've spent so much more time on privates. And the, the private investing strategy has paid off because most of the assets that have seen, you know, series A, B, C financing, et cetera, have been uplifted by other investors as they've gotten public or as they've gone public, I should say. So I think that sort of um, the, cre the creation of this of these crossover funds as we know them has really changed the way investors look at biotech. And I think over time, it's had a negative impact on the public space, almost like the Frankenstein theory. A, a monster has been built, and now you see all the carnage that's that has resulted. So zooming out with biotech stocks, as you mentioned, having lost so much value, and then as we kind of hinted at before, bigger companies, especially those who've been involved with COVID-19 vaccines, are almost historically flush with cash. That leads to the hope among biotech investors that we'd see more acquisitions. That hasn't manifested to date. I'm curious, why do you think we haven't? And, and what do you think 2022 will look like? There are so many interesting things to say about M&A. Um, with respect to pharma having interest in the space and having a lot of cash, which I think is, is spot on, I think the pharmaceutical companies are having the same difficulty in sorting through the biotech environment as, as investors are, meaning there are way too many companies to go through. 
there is infinite capital, there is infinite company formation. And all of that has created a tremendous amount of confusion as to not knowing where the next asset, where the next drug, where the next company is coming from. And I think in a way, there's been like a little bit of paralysis on the part of larger cap pharma companies that do not want to do the wrong deal. And for that reason, I think M&A has stalled, even though cash balances have gone up a lot. And the other thing is that the value creation as a result of M&A and biotech has not really been all that significant over the past couple of years. So even though there's there are pipeline needs and obligations that Pfizer, J&J, Bristol, you name it, finding the right asset, given hundreds of companies in public biotech, and then hundreds that we know of and plenty that we do not know in private, make it very, very difficult to assess winners and losers. You know, you also wrote this week that it's not helpful when the leading thesis to every stock is takeout. So what sense do you have about why these like fundamental updates from biotech companies aren't really exciting investors? You know, we, we saw some at the JP Morgan conference last week. We have seen clinical trial readouts, but it just seems like that doesn't get people's excitement up either. Why is that? I mean, is the science not exciting or is it already baked in? I hate the M and A thesis. I think it, it's so um, it's so trite, and we don't hear it in any other industry vertical. Um, biotech seems to be the only one where investors rally around a bull thesis because they think their their company or their stock is going to be taken out. Onto the second part of the question, I think the backdrop in terms of fundamentals has actually not changed that much. You can argue that the data sets in 2021 and so far in 2022 have not been all that climactic. Um, but I think a lot of the problem is the the way that clinical trials are run now with these the drips and drabs of data um, that are set forth and communicated to the street in tiny amounts over the course of months or years makes these readouts way less meaningful over time. And I think investors have sort of become a little bit numb to some of the clinical readouts because we're not getting full throttle clinical trials where we have a full data set of patients against a placebo. We're talking about one patient here, three patients here. So I think the design and the communication of the trials themselves is an inherent issue. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, Jared, because I, I feel like, and I wonder what, you th what your take on this is that biotech stocks don't trade on fundamentals like they used to. I have a circle of buy side folks that I've known for like 15, 20 years. And, you know, when I get together with them, and most recently I had a like a, a Zoom, a Zoom get together with a bunch because we usually do it around JP Morgan. We usually get dinner, but this time we had a Zoom. But like that was kind of a lament from them that, you know, that it's, you know, it used to be that you could that there was a logic to the way stocks reacted to news. And and we just don't see that as much anymore. There's there's like this disconnect. I think you're right. And I think what's happened over time is that this investor base has become so cynical. It's almost as though we're looking for any negative piece of information we can possibly gather to offset something good. I think there's a psychological situation that's happened over the, over the course of time with respect to biotech that's made the moves way less meaningful. And I think, as I alluded to before, when you have clinical trial results that that drip the way that these companies have sort of made them, the readouts just have way less of an impact when you really get down to it. That's so interesting because I think you're absolutely right about the the drip and drab 
um, pace of data disclosure. But I also I could imagine management teams at biotech companies saying, but that's what you wanted. Because so often there's this pressure. When's the interim analysis? When can we get this? This force, like how much information can you give us? And so it's almost like, I mean, investors, if they're complaining about this, they're victims of their own success in terms of changing how this stuff is communicated in the industry. I agree. I think it's a double-edged sword what's happening. You know, once these companies go public, everyone wants to know, like, what's the most important thing at any of these testing the waters or any of these investor meetings? It's when is your data coming? There's such a pressure on the part of these management teams. And so many of these management teams have been cobbled together last minute. I mean, think about how many companies have are in the private and public arena in biotech, like finding good management teams is probably like a, a very big struggle for a lot of these companies. And then to put them in the public domain with the pressure of putting out significant news as fast as possible, to me, is a negative. Now, I know that's just how the industry works. and, the, and But as far as a dynamic within the industry, I think it's really hurt these stocks. Maybe we should bar the, the use of the word catalyst in biotech. That might help. And news flow. You know, when, when's, when's your next catalyst is like the most often asked question. Absolutely. The, the term catalyst and, and update, uh, incremental, these are all words that are belabored to death. And it's, it has not done any good recently. Now, we have to be fair. The biotech index from 2016 through 2021 had a pretty good move. So all of these dynamics are, are fairly recent. But I think, you know, the, the private investing and the amount of clinical trials, the number of readouts, and the fact that we're inundated with information I think has made so many of these events that would have been more meaningful, very anticlimactic, unfortunately. So what's the impact of this kind of route in biotech stocks on the you know end product of developing new medicines? Does it delay good science from working its way through the clinic or, or delay drugs from advancing? Um, or is the impact really just biotech investors are, are kind of hurting right now? I think it's probably the latter. I mean, we're, we're still seeing a lot of funds raise money. Um, for the purpose of putting more funds into private companies, which is going to spur innovation and development, at least theoretically. So I don't think it's had a major negative impact on, you know, science or, or innovation at all. So this has been a pretty dour discussion, Jared. So uh, are there any bright spots out there that you want to identify? You know, I think part of the reason why biotech has sold off so much is due to the favoritism that other industry verticals have gotten. So I do think there is hope in that once the stocks in these other arenas have done better and like these macro-oriented reopening trades are a little bit long in the tooth, that investors are going to come back to what has been a reasonably good growth sector over the years that really had one very bad year out of the last five. So things are not so bad. I just think investors are shocked to see their space perform so poorly in the face of a market that's, for the most part, gone straight up. Well, Jared, thank you so much for joining us. No problem. Thank you for having me.
while publicly traded biotech companies are having a year to forget, there's still a bull market for big ideas in the startup world. The latest example came this week when Altos Labs, a previously secretive biotech firm, disclosed that it had raised no fewer than $3 billion to work on what its founder called disease reversal. That's the largest single venture capital financing in biotech history, as far as anyone can tell. So why do they need all that money? What makes them think this science is worth it? And how big does Altos have to get for investors to make a return? To discuss those and other questions, we're joined by Stats' Matt Herper, who spoke to the founders of Altos. Matt, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So Matt, I feel like maybe some of the explanation for all of the big numbers and like bold face attention uh, that Altos got is tied to who is behind it. So tell us, who is behind Altos Labs? Absolutely. So uh, one big name is Rick Klausner, who's a former head of the NCI. He's also the guy who was pretty instrumental in creating the idea for Grail, the liquid biopsy company, and also for Juno, um, the CAR-T company that was sold to Celgene and then Bristol. And those were fairly successful deals for investors, even though the products haven't really hit consumers yet. So money has been made on his big ideas. And you also have Hans Bishop, who was the CEO of both Grail and Juno. And you have uh, Hal Barron, who is leaving GlaxoSmithKline, where he was brought in with a great deal of celebration a few years ago as the chief scientific officer, and Barron will be the CEO. So those are all big names. There really is a big group of people who have both some some business track record and scientific track record and who are names that investors would know. And also um, some really deep pockets. We know Yuri Milner is involved uh, and also Bob Nelson, who is kind of the big rainmaker in private biotech uh, with really huge deals that kind of make people's eyes pop with the amount of dollar signs attached. So let's talk about some more of the science. Um, Klausner told you, quote, we're not an aging company. We're certainly not a longevity company. We're a disease reversal company by programming cells in a variety of ways to have more optimal resilience. So what are they doing? <laughs> they are going to be doing a lot is what it sounds like. They're basically founding three scientific institutes in different parts of the world, uh, plus funding Yamanaka's work. And a lot of that's really basic science. So um, they don't actually think it will be Yamanaka factors. They think it will be other small molecules. But you can take these molecules and affect cells within the body. There's been some evidence in mice. But a lot of this is, is pretty uh, virgin territory. This is basically founding a giant biotech on preclinical insights and trusting that this huge number of smart people will be able to figure out how to turn this into products. And then how that pays out is a is a question I think we're all going to be having parlor games with for a while. You know, when I heard about this announcement, uh, Aldous Labs announcement this week, my mind immediately sort of clicked back to Calico, which was another kind of big science company that was funded by the Google billionaires. And, you know, then there's a Hal Barron connection because Hal Barron uh, used to work at Calico before he went to GSK. And now he's going to work for Altos Labs. I, I mean, is there is there like a through line with these kinds of companies, do you think? Well, Hal likes big ideas, obviously. I, I think that with with Calico, that was really I mean, Calico's still going, you know, said it would take a long time. And it is there have been some. Uh, clinical trials and targets talked about. We haven't really seen anything that's 
kind of wowed the world. Um, these projects can take a long time, and that's one of the justifications for the huge amount of money they raise, that they're going to, you know, they don't know when they'll be ready to raise again. The other thing is that there are these ideas that maybe don't make sense on a near-term time horizon, but maybe if you have a huge amount of money to spend and you're swinging for the fences, if you're Google, which Calico is still part of Alphabet, maybe uh, maybe you can get some advantage from that scale. I mean, I think that's kind of the Bob Nelson pitch. You know, he doesn't think about what the specific returns are going to be on a company. He goes to investors and says, this will change the world if it works. And, you know, no one else is going to be able to do it because it takes so much money. There is an advantage to being so big that nobody else can catch up to you. Well, I'm kind of curious about this, the big science boom in biotech startups, uh, specifically tied to Bob Nelson and Arch and some of these, you know, basically sovereign wealth entities that can afford to back the kind of rounds that you're talking about, to what, I mean, how do they become businesses? The last one that at least came out of Arch was a company called Sana Biotechnology, which which had similarly expansive uh, goals and has since gone public in the IPO. Vague. Yeah, well, yeah, vague. <laughs> expansive is, is uh, nice for vague. Um, but the IPO hasn't exactly been a success, and that's not maybe a fair metric. It's a short-term uh, way of looking at things when obviously these are people getting entrenched for the long term. But, you know, we had this long conversation with Jared Holtz just a few minutes ago about just how brutal things are for publicly traded biotech stocks. So I guess I'm wondering, like, where does the rubber meet the road with these things? Because at some point, however many billions of dollars, however many billionaires, you have to, like, make a thing and someone has to want to buy it. Not only that, if you if you invest three billion, you expect to get a lot more than three billion back, and they say this is just the beginning. So you're talking about wanting to get thirty billion, right? Like, I mean, it's 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 a difficult thing to wrap one's head around. I mean, my guess right now would be that this company is probably not going to have to make many things in order to make good on this investment, and that there's going to have to be a stream of new biology and new medicines that come out of it in a way that's different from Sana or Grail or Juno. You know, it, always with these companies, you know, often the thing that ends up making you money isn't what you started with. So this is a a really substantial bet on something huge. And it seems in some ways designed to be able to go in different directions, but it's also it's also kind of going to be stuck being something huge. I mean, they're building actual scientific institutes with 10 principal investigators each. So that's 30 labs, you know, and a big machine learning component. You know, one of the advantages of biotech is often that you can do it with three people in a virtual company. Um, not this. This is building a whole big pharma R&D operation from scratch. Well, speaking of big pharma R&D operations, one of the interesting personnel uh, announcements here was the involvement of Hal Perrin. And I actually first saw the news that he was leaving GSK. I didn't realize what, you know, where he was going. And then I saw your story. But what are the implications of Hal Barron leaving GSK? I mean, they've been going through a really tough time with a lot of pressure from activists, now seeing this sort of very well-respected research head leaving. Where does that leave GlaxoSmithKline? Well, I, I got to speak speak to Hal about this um, after the story. Uh, and that's not out yet. So some news. But uh, Hal's very insistent that 
there is uh, that he's going to remain on the board, uh, that his successor has been handling a lot of this and is ready, and that they've built um, a, a strong R and D pipeline. Um, you know, expertise in immunology. You know, he said that any for any R and D chief, the job is never finished and should be sort of unfinished because otherwise you're not leaving things for your successor to do. I do think that it will it does play somewhat into the narrative of of GSK being pushed to redefine itself again. And you also have to throw in the whole Unilever negotiation there too, right? Um, and they're kind of in a position where they have a lot of options. But there's also this kind of one thing Barron did say is that he thought that it's kind of that people were looking at as kind of a show me story that the goals they put out are achievable, but they're going to have to prove to Wall Street that that they can happen. Well, if you're a scientist uh, looking for a new job, uh, I would uh, recommend applying to Altos because they apparently have a lot of money to spend. Uh, Matt, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and if you're shocked that we didn't talk about Biogen this week. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. I'm shocked. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcast. See you next week.